0: Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, if you've been listening to the show lately, uh, you've heard that most of the recent episodes um, have, well, all of the past three have been about love. And this episode is no exception, but it goes to a very different place, and that is love for people that uh, we view as beyond love, or people who might have given up the right, as we might see it, um, to be loved, to receive love. Um, This episode is with Dr. Gwen Adzad, who is a forensic psychiatrist and co-author with Eileen Horn of The Devil You Know, Stories of Human Cruelty and Compassion. Gwen works with serial killers, with sex offenders, with arsonists. And she says, I often describe my patients as survivors of a disaster where they are the disaster. And I know that many of the people in her book, um, the, the book starts off, for instance, with someone who has uh, murdered and decapitated uh, multiple people I know that these people seem so outside or or maybe so undeserving they, they they've given up um, their foothold in this realm of love with us because of the acts of violence that they've committed but when we look at through the lens of Gwen's work and people who are uh, as patient and as open and as understanding as she is, (laughs) which is rare, we might begin to see not just images of cruelty committed, but also images of despair and of pain when we look at and consider violent offenders. How do we cope when we see more than just the violence? I mean, or, or maybe we can't see more than just the violence. How do we cope then, especially if the violence has been done to us or to a loved one, or perhaps we've seen images of violence. We've heard stories of abuse and killing, or, or maybe we're doing some activism that relates to exploitation and violence. You know, I, I sometimes tell people to try to forgive the perpetrator of the violence by praying for them in the same way that you pray for the victim. But of course it's not that easy, or if it is, the ease is not always accessible. In other words, perhaps it is as easy as praying for the perpetrator as well as the victim. Um, But that ease is not easy. Getting to that point is not easy. And maybe it seems a little glib to say that, and maybe sometimes it is. And yet I feel that there is a deep pain and suffering in hating others, in fearing others, in condemning others. And sometimes even maybe a pain and suffering of separation from our own love of the world. That uh, We begin to fear love itself. We begin to hate the spiritual presence of forgiveness. And, um... I think to maybe access this kind of forgiveness and this kind of compassion and love or this contour of love I should say it takes some walking along the path where we actually resonate with the other to be able to forgive them and perhaps that's why it's not easy because we don't want to do that and rightfully so although work like the devil, you know, um, can give us a little window there. I think we can understand by, or or try to understand, by looking into ourselves. So first, and this is something Gwen points out, that that disgust we feel um, upon hearing someone has done something violent or terrible, we could maybe view that as... A resonance, almost really an empathy with the perpetrator, with the offender, that the deep loathing that many of these offenders feel for themselves resonates within us as a loathing for them. So we feel, in some cases, what they feel. Um, or maybe we can find a way in by thinking about times when we have thought about hurting ourselves, that self-harm not not because it's like harming another person, but rather that when we do harm ourselves or we follow that impulse down uh, the down the lane for a bit, that we experience um, a kind of cry, a plea, or an expression that is unexpressible by our language and can only seemingly come out by inflicting something again not to make equivalent hurting yourself and hurting another but just that the the sort of inner strangulation of the person who wants to speak arises as an action of the body harming destroying doing something drastic Another possible way to maybe understand people who are violent offenders and therefore maybe find a pathway to forgiveness is to think about, you know, maybe, maybe via this statement that they're survivors of disaster where they are to disaster, that um. there's a kind of way in which the violence that's inflicted creates a split in them and then they end up, in a lot of ways, trying to protect themselves from who they've become in this disaster uh, of their own lives. So what do I mean by that? Well, you know, I had the author of I, U, We, Them, which is about death killers, um, on the show, on episode 128, Dan Gretton. And in that book, he talks about people who sort of murder by... Policy who do murder by policy they sign a piece of paper and it has horrible consequences for others. Uh, They work at a corporation that is harming other people. Um, Or perhaps you work at a corporation that harms people. (laughs) You can understand that way as well. But but this is more just to say. Dan talked to his parents about the Holocaust and he had asked his mother, you know, would you have saved? jewish people from the nazis and she said yes of course without any sort of hesitation but then she added on well unless my kids were in danger in which case maybe not now why do i bring this up not to compare someone protecting their child from someone who hurts people including children but rather to say For some of the violent offenders, especially those depicted in Gwen's book through her work to understand, we see a kind of protective mechanism at work um, in people who try to hide away what they've done or hide away the self that is not violent. In other words, a kind of split happens, a shattering of the self, where one part of the self becomes violent. And the other feels guilt and shame about the violence or sometimes is even so disconnected that it doesn't remember the violence. And Gwen talks about this in the episode. So this protective part that could excuse or ignore violence to protect someone that's cared about, maybe that's a pathway to understanding. I I don't know. I, I'm just offering... And maybe at this point in the introduction, you're thinking, well, Connor, why, why does this have to be done at all? Why any forgiveness? Um, perhaps it's just enough to hate them, or to punish them, or to be angry at them. But I ask, you know, beyond just that pain and suffering that we feel when we hate others, where has that gotten us? And this is something that I've been thinking about so much with this question of love, all these structures we've set up that are not related to love, where have they gotten us? Prison industrial complexes, wars, social unrest, even just hating your neighbor. You know, there's this line that Byron Katie, the sort of spiritual teacher I really like, she says, uh, love thy neighbor as I love myself. Yes, I hate myself, so I hate everyone else, right? So There's a way in which, you know, we've got this work to undo our own feelings about ourselves and to look into ourselves so we can stop hating our neighbors. And uh, right now, we expect the other to do the work for us before we do it. We expect the other to undergo radical psychological change, when we, from a place of often relative safety, are unable to extend that kind of love to them, even from a distance, unwilling to maybe take an interest in the other, even if they've done something terrible. And so I think, in a lot of ways, the only pathway to sort out all these complex structures of violence that people inhabit and the, and the causes of violence and the things that impel people into violence and the ways people find themselves in disastrous lives of violence is through doing that work ourselves. In our quiet hours if we want in the times when we're not angry if we want the extension of love as a gift it's the prayer of saint francis really which is lord make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred let me sow love where there is injury pardon where there is doubt faith where there is despair hope where there is darkness light and where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born into eternal life. Amen. So, now we'll turn you over (laughs) to this great conversation, uh, with a really extraordinary human being, Dr. Gwen said. Um, and, uh, thank you for, uh, listening to this intro and for sticking through what is, I think a very loving, but sometimes maybe challenging conversation. Please do consider supporting the show. The show, uh, only exists because listeners support it. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. That's C O N N E R H A B I B. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and contributing uh, means so much to me that this show is fully listener supported. All right, that's it. Here we go. Hi everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor Habib, and hello, Gwen Adzad. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Hi,
1: hi Connor. It's a great pleasure to be on your show.
0: <laughs> well, let's um, let's get right into it. Um, you know, I I think maybe laying some groundwork around what you do, um, as far as a kind of moral or ethical approach, I think would help people go through the rest of this conversation and so what i wanted to bring up is you know i've read you say look my my work is not is to understand but not excuse and i think a lot of people might have trouble holding that statement i mean i i like it you know i mean in the way it's a saint francis kind of statement in its way but i but I wonder if people might think, well, to understand is to excuse or even to take the pathway down to understanding why someone would be a violent offender, um, sex offender, whatever would would mean that we had already made the decision to excuse what they'd done. So could you maybe start there?
1: Wow. <laughs> what a number. Uh, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But actually, there are about. Ten or fifteen different philosophical questions, I think, implied by your by by what you've just said. I, I mean, this is way complicated. So, I wonder if I can 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 give a little bit of background about about my work because I think um, I think you're right. There is very much something about psychiatrists who work with offenders that is very much about trying to understand. There's no question about that, and of course, that's what the book is about. The book is a kind of invitation to come and see, come and look, and come and understand. But I think for me, and I was thinking about this, you know, in preparing for this interview and knowing your interest in in transgressive things, that in a way psychiatry is all about rule breaking. Mm -hmm. There's something about psychiatry, which is an invitation to say, well, this kind of rule breaking, this kind of difference might arise from mental health problems or disorders or something. Um, and and that is, of course, is one of the things that's problematic about psychiatry is its power to to name the abnormal, if you like, to 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 label that. So um, when I became a psychiatrist, I was always slightly anxious about that. And I'd done some study of law and moral philosophy when I did a master's degree in medical law and medical ethics because I was interested in this problem. Um, so. That's what drew me in a way to forensic psychiatry, which is where law and mental health come together, mm-hmm. because I was interested in how these two kinds of disciplines approach people who are different. Mm-hmm. And so and people who carry out violent offences are different. Are They're different from the rest of us, because most people, the good news is that most people don't commit acts of violence, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, you could be forgiven for thinking that's not the case. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, the way that it's reported, you know, and, and I'm not saying that violence isn't a problem or that there's too much, there's, you know, there isn't, there, sh, there should be much less of it, but but it's an odd way for people to break the law. So so there's something about violent offense, uh, offenders, violence perpetrators, which is odd and different. And so what I'm interested in is what we're doing when we're looking at people who've decided, if decide is the right word, who've broken the law in this way, <coughs> who've helped other people. And, and I'm interested in those processes of judgment. So I don't, But I don't think that you can get to judgment until you understand how this person came to let themselves do what they did. So the very, very long answer to your complicated question, Connor, and I'm sorry it's so long, but the very long answer is that I don't think there's anything excusing implied <laughs> by an exploration of who this person is. Um, and anyway, excuse is not my job as a psychiatrist. You know, the excusing or condemnation, that's done by a court on behalf <laughs> of all of us. That's not my thats not my brief. I don't have to do that. But I can't even help society. I can't even help the legal forums get close to trying to decide about condemnation or, or excuse or whatever it is they want to decide. I can't help them. Get close, and of course, that's what a forensic expert does. Sometimes I can't help them unless I understand mm-hmm. what brought this person to the position.
0: Yeah, I th- so I think I think part of it is maybe mm, you know, as I as I read your book and just listened to interviews and so forth. I mean, I I I would have maybe had this sort of tendency anyway, but I came to have compassion for the people you talk. With right and uh, and I know that at least in some cases, although <laughs> maybe not David, but some of the others, you must have decided to have compassion with. Um, you you had compassion for for them as well, even in hearing. And I think that maybe maybe the law side is like maybe it's just that compassionate law is so unimaginable to so many of us that to understand, but not excuse seems impossible. Um, and, and, and so I wonder, you know, I wonder if that it's, it's something like that, like, okay, well, is the law, this is a a horrible question, but I mean, is the law, you know, um, threatened by compassion in a sense, like, does it find itself uneasy around it? And, um, you know, because it, it has to be so well defined and exact that or, or, I know it's not. I know that there is room for compassion in law, but I think that a lot of us tend to view it as exacting and, and hyper boundaried, you know.
1: I think that's right. And I think I mean, and there is something about the law which is black and white which is adversarial, which naturally sets up a kind of Mm -hmm. competition or an an adversarial struggle. I mean, and we call it the adversarial approach. That's what the the counsellors call it, the barristers, or we call them here. Mm -hmm. They call it, you know, they're, they're advocates for a position And that position is in contradistinction to the other position. So it is very black and white. And only one can win when it comes to the criminal court. Only one can win. You're either guilty or not guilty. And and so it's a fight. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I guess this question of what happens afterwards. One of the really interesting things, I think, is not even so much the issue about judgment, but what is the, in a way, it's not so much what the criminal courts are for as what the prisons are for. Mm. And the sentencing is full. And I think you're very interesting question, you see. I think, can we have compassionate law? I'm sure we can have compassionate law. And I think many jurisprudential folk would say there's a welfare aspect to law. You know, that's Mm. happened about Mm. building up society, building up relationships with people. Mm. Um, But I wonder whether for me what you're saying is really a very interesting question, is what is the role, if any of retributive justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is, what about retribution when people have done harm, when one citizen has done harm to another, what is the place, if any, for retribution? And, you know, you and I have been living for the last couple of decades through a time when retributive justice has had a big, big uh, expansion in both the US and the UK. We've been imprisoning people like this, like there is literally no tomorrow for them. Yeah. So, um, and that's very interesting about what that's about where is that why is that retribution having its heyday now?
0: Yeah, so I mean, that's huh. I mean, that is really interesting why now I mean, we could point to some material aspects, of course,, um, and some of them are really horrific, prison labor and privatized prisons in the u s particularly. but I think I think maybe you know so but 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 it's making me think okay so what happens then to doing restorative justice or whatever while this retribution model is expanding making more money still in place all that and it would indicate to me that actually one aspect of restorative justice i don't like the i don't like the tack on of justice there but re, but the restoration would be even if the person can't see their victim or the victim can't see the perpetrator or whatever, just sitting down in therapy is part of it, you know, just sitting down for the therapeutic process. So the person can see themselves, you know, and in some sense, see their own face. And in, in some cases in your book, actually find out that the two people are one, you know, um, which we'll talk about maybe a little bit later, but I think. um, So in in some ways I'm seeing what you're saying is like, actually, in a way, what I do, maybe you wouldn't put it this way, but a way what I do is allow for some piece of restoration, restorative justice to happen within a retribution system. I
1: I think that's absolutely right. Um, I'm I'm not in favor of retributive justice, or at least retribution in the sense, only in the sense of deprivation of liberty has to be reasonable and Mm. proportional. I mean those are the principles of justice that we all work in and I'm also opposed to retributive justice just big be, partly because we know that punishment doesn't work for people you you know you the more you shame people or belittle them the less likely they are to want to turn and look at that part of themselves mm-hmm. that has caused harm to others and the reason the reason that Eileen and I went for the title of our book the devil you know is, you know, this is an old, I think it's an, Eileen said it was an old Irish proverb, you know, mm-hmm. the, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Mm-hmm. And and we were very much coming from a position, and I think what you said is just beautiful, because it is absolutely right, that it is better to know our devils and explore them, mm-hmm. um, if we want to try <laughs> and make them future which is what 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 most of the criminologists talk about in terms of and 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 making reparation and restoring something restoring a connection to society and so you're absolutely right my ideal for my work if i had a you know, my professional mission statement is i think to not only take the patient's mental health seriously i want them to to as it were feel better whatever that means and of course that's going to mean different things to different people but that's got to be within the frame I think of of coming to terms with what they've done being willing and able to look at what they've done and think about what making good in future might look at and that's a that's a phrase that Shad Maruna who's a criminologist in Manchester who's a really good guy really interesting man um um, he's used that about what makes people give up lives of crime and mm. desist in the future. And I think that idea of making good is a really interesting phrase.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I think, I mean, I think it's interesting to, like to say for the path of understanding, I mean, I think typically the stereotypical idea of where you start with therapy is childhood and all that sort of stuff. And of course you do go there, but I, I found it so fascinating. You said once um, that you like this moment when you sit down with someone and say, how does it come that we are meeting today? Where does the story start? In other words, the story being you and I in therapy together, we, we sit together now and this is the beginning this is, in some ways, the beginning and the end of the story. Um, mm-hmm. And and how did you end up here with me in this room? Because I think that's <clears throat> another problem with for, that people have with understanding but not excusing is like, oh, well, sure, that person was treated wrong as a child, but then that doesn't give them an excuse to do this, which, of course, you do state quite unequivocally. But that can sort of disrupt the ability to find a starting place. So if instead you say the starting place is we're sitting here in this room, how did we come to be here together in this act of getting to know who you are, both for me as the analyst or therapist and you as the therapist or analyst? like, I find that really a really, in, 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 uh, I don't even know what to say. Like impressive is not the right word. That su- sounds condescending, but like, just, I find it a very like interesting use of time, like literally of time, like of using that as the tool, you know?
1: Hmm. Well, I guess I was very influenced. Um, I, I got very influenced by the idea of, of you know, that life is a narrative, the whole narrative theory, both of life, but narrative theories of ethics narrative theories of um, stages of life, and I became really and I got interested in the work of a sociologist called Dan McAdams, who, who's uh, probably retired now, but written a lot about the development of the personality across the lifespan. He's a, he was based in Chicago. Um, and he, he developed something called a sort of life story interview, um, which was really, again, about, it was actually about helping people um, come to terms with bad things that had happened to them as opposed to what they'd done. Oh. Although a couple of people in his, had were people who had done you know, bad things, um, and so I, I it, it suddenly occurred to me. I mean, maybe I should have been late to the party, really, but it occurred to me that actually I was meeting people at a very particular moment in their lives. It was like a new chapter had opened. You know, they they'd killed somebody in a state of mental disturbance, you know grievous mental disturbance, um, and now somebody was dead. They were in a secure psychiatric hospital man how did that happen Mm -hmm. and here i am this is a new chapter of my life now i'm living my life now in a high secure psychiatric hospital and this woman is coming in to talk to me and what you know how am i going to be in this how am i going to live my life now so it seemed to me that what i could do to make that easier is to say you know is to recognize that this is a new chapter in your life Mm -hmm. um And actually, uh, something, again, I used to do when people were first admitted to the hospital where I work, I used to say, did you ever think you'd end up in a place like this? (laughs) It's really interesting, the people who would say, you know what, I think I was always coming here. And the other people who would say, no, I never thought I'd end up here and I shouldn't be here either, Doctor. (laughs) But there are a number number of people who would say to me, "You you know what, I think I was always going to end up here.
0: Or somewhere like it. It's so so interesting because I think so many of us, so many people think, I mean, as I think like, oh, if you ever got arrested and go to jail, life is over. Like that's the statement. There's a wall and perhaps it's, you know, accorded by suicidal ideation. Like if that were going to happen, I would just kill myself. But even just saying this is a new chapter of your life is an invitation to... You know, some sort of self-compassion and compassion for the other, like, and just saying also outwardly to the rest of the world, like people are alive in here. This is, you know, someone is living. And I, I think about <laughs> this weird there's this layering here of so if someone if 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 you're working with someone, a lot of times at least it sounds like there's an event that catalyzes them, you know, coming to to see you. Whereas I think, you know, I've done four years of Lacanian analysis, so I'm extremely messed up, but no, I did four years of Lacanian analysis and with two different analysts. But the the second one, you know, I remember I felt fine when I started seeing her and she was like, hmm, so you feel great. I was like, yeah, I feel great. I just want to go on this adventure, you know, and I knew that that was bullshit. And she did too, you know, like, and <laughs> But, but in other words, I'm just bringing this up to say, like a lot of people go to therapy without really knowing why, you know, or even having a delusional idea of why they might be going like I did, you know, venture in consciousness. And then in the meantime, it's like the most crushing experience for like two years, but then, you know, the people you see actually know why they're going to therapy, at least in some inciting way. Um, And then there's all the extra stuff that they might not know. So I found that also really interesting that there's not a, there is obviously so much to look into or mystery or whatever behind the door of the event. Um, However, most people don't even, most people don't get that. You know, um, or maybe they do. Maybe i um, Maybe people go to therapy because they're like, "Oh, I'm having relationship problems or trouble sleeping or something like that." So maybe I'm characterizing it wrong. But I think there's uh, there's a difference there. If if that makes sense. Obviously, there's a difference in violent offense, but I just mean in the event generally having the direct thing to point to.
1: Well, but I, I think you're also, for me, you're pointing to a big difference to for people, regular folk like you and me, seeking therapy and uh, respect having a Lacanian analysis. <laughs> um, and uh, I um, I settled for group therapy, um, which is um, easier in a way, um, but difficult in other ways. But um, I'm a group therapist by training, so I had a group analysis and... Uh, yeah, that's difficult in different ways. So um but uh, the but I suppose you I mean, there are two things here. One is that say, so people like you and me, we go for therapy, and we either come with a problem, and you know, and often people do come with a problem, they want it fixed. And of course, one of the things you do as a therapist is you very gently, after a little while, you explain very kindly to this person that actually fixing them isn't isn't on the agenda. Right. you know mm-hmm. that the only person who's going to be changing anything is them they are going to change their minds about themselves or indeed the problem. And then one of the weird things, isn't it? The paradox is that you have to accept the problem before you can let it go. So that's the, that's the other thing. That's one thing. But then there are people who come and they say, well, I want to make sense of my life story. You know, this is, I've I've just broken up for my fourth relationship. I'm beginning to wonder whether it's, it it is really is me and not them. (laughs) um, (laughs) It's not me. It's not you. It's me. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It is me. <laughs> uh, and and people want to start to look at who they are. And that, as you say, that could be a journey of exploration, but no, not necessarily. And I think what you said is really, really important. And therapy needs to come with a health warning, which is that mm-hmm. you may find this process really uncomfortable. You know, it's not going to be necessarily having a pleasant time. And your therapist is not there to make you feel better about yourself. That is mm-hmm. very important. But you are absolutely right that my guys. And they are generally men. In my day job, most of my work is with men. Although I do see women, have seen quite a number of women when I because I work in a women's prison. But um, most of the guys I meet are, are there, as they see it, to talk about the offence. Or at least that's a very obvious uh, point of, to, 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 of reference. And most guys have a story about how that came about. And a lot of the work that we do in therapy is about dismantling that kind of cover story Mm-hmm. Um, I think I probably talk about it somewhere in one of the chapters, maybe in the chapter about Sam, where we talk about uh, uh we set up a therapy group for people who killed a family member when they were mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Um, that was based on some wonderful work by some lovely colleagues of mine in Connecticut. Um and um and so I, I learned from them something very important. We set up this therapy group. And what became clear is that people would come to therapy with a story. They'd come with a story of how it had happened often very influenced by what had happened at the criminal court, by the way, you know, it's by what their mm. lawyers advised them to say <laughs> or to be sensible at the time. And our job in the therapy was to help them in a way, very gently let go of that story in a way, break it down to its constituent parts or mm. aspects and rebuild a story, a deeper, more nuanced story. Mm. So Come, you know so you were going to end up in the same event but you had a much deeper and richer understanding of how you got there um and that's really and that was a really important part of the work with people where where this where the apparent the cover story is my mental illness made me do it
0: yeah, well i wonder I wonder and I don't mean to sound like I'm romanticizing a violent offense but I wonder if it like maybe a different way of saying or a clear way of saying what I was trying to say then is like, is the violent offense a direct, it's like a direct sign, like pointing to the person's fundamental fantasy. Whereas I think a lot of us, like people who have are not violent offenders, we don't have a direct pointer to it. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm simplifying it too much. And I'm not trying to be like, well, we shall be violent offenders so we can figure out our fundamental fantasy really quickly. But like, It's pointing at, like, what is this sort of grounding in someone's life, and then how can we retell the grounding, saying, look, this offence actually wasn't necessary for you to get to the grounding, and that's why you're here, because it wasn't necessary, and here's how we can see it sort of differently from there.
1: And that, of course, is why therapy can be very painful Mm. for violent perpetrators, because they then realise often that there was another way... And they made a terrible error and as a result of that error have caused dreadful, irreparable damage, um, not only uh, to other people, which is bad enough, particularly if it was someone they loved, um, but to themselves. So that's a, and we have to be super careful about, um, about when we're, you know, it's that lovely Shakespeare quote about when we have our naked frailties hid that suffer an exposure. Mm-hmm. We'll question this most bloody piece of work to know it further, and and that's what we so we we want to know this bloody piece of work, mm-hmm. but we have to make sure that people's naked frailties are not exposed too quickly. Mm-hmm. Have to go mm-hmm. carefully, and uh, because otherwise people can become suicidal, you know. So we don't and we don't want that. But I think you said something really important about a delusional or a violent fantasy at the heart of every violent offense because i'm sure that that is true and it's highly idiosyncratic to that person i think and again in the book we talk a little bit about these risk factors like a, being like a bicycle lock um and where and there are the ordinary risk factors which are not very interesting like being young and male which is not particularly helpful um and then there's things like substance misuse, which is a big risk factor. And then there's something like paranoid mental states, which is related often to the drug use. But the last number is highly idiosyncratic, I think, to that person. Mm -hmm. And it reflects, as you say, a kind of fantasy about who they are and who other people are. But I would also add to your very interesting thought, the idea that the violence is a communication to the victim, Mm -hmm. albeit a weird one, a weird, strange, distorted, incomprehensible communication. And, and often we wonder as therapists, whether with violence perpetrators, whether we really, another reason to get close and try and understand, because if they feel they haven't got their message across, will they do it again?
0: Yeah. And I think that that, yeah, like the suicidal thought is communication to others. Right. And, you know, it's like the, the, the teenage fantasy, you know, as like you kill yourself so you can see everybody at your funeral crying, you know, and of course that's, Perhaps that's afforded to you in some way in the afterlife, but it's not afforded to you in the way that you're imagining it. You know, <laughs> when you're in that state, you have someone in the book. Uh, uh, I might say her name wrong. This Zara, Zara. Yeah. Who, who was imagining what the suicide would communicate to others. So I think we, anybody who's had those kinds of thoughts can imagine what the violence might be a communication to the other or to the world, you know? And I, and I, you have this, um, thing that you've said and is in the book. And it's really, oh, it's so striking on so many levels, which is, you know, violent offenders are survivor of a disaster where they themselves are the disaster something. I'm I'm misquoting a little bit, but where they themselves are the disaster, the disaster is their life. And I think um, it's that, you know, anytime I would think of self-harm or where if I see, see others and, and then to some extent, the, 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 people that you work with, there is a split. Yeah. There's like a split subject or a split self where it's like, I will communicate to the world what this person who is not the violent offender wants to say, which is so intense and sad um, in its way that there's someone within us and within them that, is feels diminished or feels unheard feels you know missed or trampled on and the only way that that person can act is in conjunction with the other self that commits the violence
1: yes i think that idea of the fragmentation of mind is is crucial to the kind of incoherent distress that often precedes any kind of violence um even whether it's violence to the self um, or violence to others, and of course, I'm sure, as I'm sure you know, that, that a lot of people have speculated mm. on the link between suicidal feelings and homicidal feelings, and of course, there there are these very sad stories of homicides followed by suicide. A considerable number of domestic homicides are followed by suicide of the perpetrator, and and uh, and I think you know we always think about suicidality in terms of distress. But there is that you know some people have also always talked about as kind of self-murder. There's a kind of hostility yeah. inwards, you know. So that kind of violence it's in, the embodiment of hatred and hostility. But this this time it's all mixed up with distress and regret and um, and yearning sometimes too, yearning to be wow. heard or understood. And I think some of the some of the people I've met who've killed again particularly killed people. Killed family members often in a very disorganized distressed state of mind you know this has to happen this is going to happen this is this is what I have to do now and it's you know it feels really mad and it is kind of mad um but it it's I think you're right there's a kind of splitting and fragmentation of mind um and often it's only in the act that suddenly everything comes together and this person touches base with reality again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've met several people who, as it were, almost in inverted commas, came to in the middle of their violence mm-hmm. and said, "Oh my goodness, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. What am I doing here?" Um, and that is, um, you know, just the overwhelming sadness. Overwhelming sadness. Yes.
0: Yeah. The, the waking up in the middle of it. I mean, I suppose that that's, you know, people who slit their wrists or whatever, when they have like the, the attempted, you know, cut, and then they realize, oh, they don't want to do it, you know? And that's why people, you know, often stop themselves in the middle of suicide or whatever. And so it's like, or or probably self-harm, even if they just cut themselves or burn themselves or whatever they do is like that attempt to, you know, oh, I'm back in it as soon as I start to do it. In some ways, it's a, you know, suicide is like a survival strategy in that sense. And I would suppose that this in some other way is a strange survival strategy where someone does not survive, you know, and, um, but, you know, I'm thinking of Tony, the first, the first person in the book, the first chapter of the book, who, you know, murdered several people, several um, guys that he picked up from gay bars and 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 decapitated them and you know that there seemed to be a part of himself this waiter self this sort of meeker self that he was trying to protect um through the through all the other things i was so I, i mean maybe some people might read that and feel no sympathy but i read it and felt you know heartbroken for him that For that person, for the waiter, you know, for the for the guy who hadn't committed these crimes, who was within this hulking person who had, you know, or Marcus, who, you know, at one point you're talking to him and he seems very standoffish and performative, and he breaks down and cries. You know, he's he's murdered uh, someone that he was seeing and breaks down and cries and says, "All I wanted was to be beautiful." I mean, this sort of. Break this kind of heartbreak of the person inside who is trying to find shelter, and the other person is trying to protect. Oof, it's in, it's intense, Gwen. <laughs> to read about.
1: it is intense, Connor. And I'm I'm really touched and moved that you saw that because that, of course, is very much what Eileen and I were very keen to try and convey is the tragic quality. Um, in the sense of the, tra- the, the the proper greek sense of the tragedy where you've made uh, i believe the word the hamartia means a kind of mistake or a miss hit you've just you've just read things completely wrong and um and you've done something which just destroys everything that you hold dear <coughs> uh, and um and i think that if for both marcus and tony there's this kind of split as you say where the where the violence isn't it can be an attempt to try and keep keep something else alive. That if I if I locate all my violence in this place, mm-hmm. then I'll be able to keep this other self. And I think that word performative is an interesting one. I'll be able to keep that other self alive. But doesn't it make you also think about this fascinating idea about being good? Don't all of us want to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want to have a good self. We want to keep, keep alive the idea I'm a good person. The mm-hmm. fact that I go out and kill people from time to time doesn't stop me from being a good person. And there, <laughs> it's a kind of paradox that people get into where, you know, um, they they and, and I certainly the people that I work with often when we start, you know, the, the, often one of the barriers to acceptance is, is, is taking on the shame of having done something terrible and saying I'm a bad person. I, I must be a bad person. I've done all this horrible, I've done this horrible thing.
0: Yeah, and obviously the law is not capable of passing judgment on both people. In in one person, it's just not, it can't. And so that's where this other aspect has to come in. And I think, so I had um, this author, uh, Dan Gretton, on the show. He wrote this amazing book called I, You, We, Them, which is about people that kill by policy. They The desk. Massive book. And it's, I mean, it's one of the hardest things to read that I've ever read. I mean, it's, it's very intense. It's beautiful, um, but also very harrowing. And one of the things that Dan discovered is that a lot of people um, he found were willing to commit acts of violence or uh, not stop acts of violence if someone they cared was involved in some way so for instance i think he was he was talking to his parents about the holocaust at a certain point and he was like would you have shielded jewish people on the holocaust and they said yes of course of course and then like his mother i think had just sort of rethought it and then she was like unless you were in danger in which case i wouldn't have right and so now i i realize this is not exactly the same thing we're talking about but we can see in there the seed of if there's someone we love to protect, it doesn't matter how horrendous the violence to the other is. We would still either enable it, enact it, or ignore it to protect the person that we love. And so in that case, there's also this bridge to understanding and (laughs) complication of the idea of being good or bad, you know, as a person.
1: I, I absolutely agree. And I think for me, what it undermines, what I've learned over the years is that it fatally undermines the idea that there's a group of people out there called bad people mm-hmm. who are bad through and through, who get up in the morning and say, I'm, I want to be bad today. That's all I want to do. I'm just such a bad person and I really like being bad. I mean, that—that that I, I have never met such a person who says, oh, I know what the good is, but I'm going to be bad today. You know, um, I've just not met such a person. Now, I'm not saying that such people don't exist, although I worry. I, I think what's because what I've learned or what I think I've learned is that most people set out wanting to be good. But what being a good person to them may be costly, <laughs> that that, you know, following the right choices, leading the right life, um, as the Buddha said, you know, that that the you know, it's it's not easy. And. Um, You sometimes have to manage conflicts, these kind of conflicts you might have to manage. um, You might have to manage these kind of moral dilemmas by if I protect my I want to protect my son. But that means doing a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's what the challenge of goodness is all around. It's all about. And I I think that book sounds really interesting. I've got an equivalent book like that called "Ordinary People," Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning, mm. which is about the Einsatzgruppen, the men um, uh, who were the, the particular army groups who were used um, in the first waves of the of the of the war, and um, the first the very first waves of the Holocaust before the Final Solution was finally sorted. The early waves were just about killing people mm. and that often they were done by regular German soldiers and ordinary men is about those ordinary soldiers and they could refuse mm. and a lot of them did and the idea that they would all be shot or something um if they didn't do it um is not true that a lot of them simply said I'm not shooting old women men and old women and children and, and put in a mask I'm just not going to do it and they were Nothing bad happened to them at all, except that they were called rude names and told that they were weak and pathetic. Mm-hmm. But they could refuse. So that meant that the other guys who didn't refuse were just saying, okay, whatever. I'm, you know, I'm part of this crew and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do what a soldier does. I'm, you know, a strong soldier does things they don't like, mm. which is and I, I found this book incredibly disturbing, um, and um, and and I think it was very much, um, it, and it was very much both that book and another book by Michael Burley about the, um, the again the very early stages of the Holocaust, which were mm-hmm. about the extermination program of the mentally ill, um, were about those bonds between people that make cruelty possible.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot. And, you know, having, <clears throat> knowing people both who say we're in the military, um, knowing people who work for corporations where, the bonding process is essentially a co-traumatization process, which makes it harder for the people who are in that process to leave without feeling a tremendous sense of guilt, um, leaving people behind to the, the trauma they're being, um, you know, uh, the, the trauma that's being, uh, you know, forced upon them. So I think that there's that, yeah, that co-bonding, you know, um, in that, it can do all sorts of things, but I think I, th- I I love the way that you just brought all that up because we tend to think that, and even I was sort of framing it this way in this conversation that it's violence happens because someone's back is up against the wall in some way. And it is true in some sense, but there are lots of different ways to have your back up against the wall and they don't all look familiar you know, to us, and they, you know, and it's you. You made a comment once. Um, you know, twenty-year-old man who kills an, another in a drug-related argument has nothing in common beyond a conviction for murder with a fifty-six-year-old man who strangles his wife in an argument. And I think <clears throat> those are completely different pathways to violence and completely different ways of having your back up against the wall or whatever. And they deserve you know, they deserve a different kind of investigation. And you do this, I think most, the most difficult or challenging (laughs) version of this in your book for people is, you know, dealing with sex offenders, you know, parsing out, I've I've tried to talk about this publicly sometimes too, parsing out who's a child molester versus who's a pedophile. There's a big difference. Um, And certainly public sentiment doesn't allow for much breathing room between these things. And therefore with different kinds of violent offenses, including sex offenders, doesn't really allow for much room for the victims to heal or to have a different kind of nuance dialogue, create pathways to healing societally, create help for people. And the law seems to not allow that so much either. And so I mean, it's really crucial pulling these things apart, as you do quite artfully with Eileen, you know, in this book.
1: Well, and I thank you for that, because that's, again, that was a very important aim for us in creating this work, was to try and get across how complex violence and human cruelty is. It's just not one thing you can't talk about murder as if it was just one thing. Um, And what you said about um, a sexual offender against children, again, is just not one thing. It's hugely complicated. And um, and as you can probably imagine, the the chapter that we wrote about Ian, who's a father who sexually abuses his children, um, was quite difficult to write. It was easily the most difficult to write um, in many ways. Um, but um, it was based very much on what I've heard people say, what people have said in therapy with with me um, about what they did. Um, but that kind of sexual sexual offending is based is it's, it's drawing on the relationship with the child is part of it. Mm-hmm. It's it, and, and in a way that is it, that is um, twisting something that's that's. Beautiful or loving or kind in other ways, and that's the thing that does the damage. It's the distortion of trust that does the damage. Um, and the child is not having a sexual experience, no not generally. The child is having an experience of being demanded upon or intruded upon, but asked to to ask to to share their trust, to to you know to give their trust and their love away to this person that they love so much and allow them to you know to be used um in that tr- that that trusting relationship to be used and and survivors uh, know all about this and they don't find it always helpful if somebody says oh your dad's a pedophile you know you should hate him for the rest of your life well you know that's not particularly helpful if you don't feel that way and particularly if you didn't have as many people don't they, you didn't have any kind of sexual experience you had I mean, it's even more difficult if you do have some erotic experience, That'd be even more difficult. But, mm-hmm. but if you don't have anything like that, and if you just have a kind of intrusion and a confusion into your life, then that, you know, you need a space to understand that. And, and, and people just saying, oh, your dad's a pedo is just not helpful.
0: Yeah, the, I mean, the entire cultural conversation around it is really terrible. I mean, as someone who did, I don't ever really talk about it in detail and I won't now, but like as someone who went through childhood sexual abuse for quite a while, um, I mean, I know that the model of the way people talked about it, all that did was made me blame myself for it, you know, for, for, until I was, until i gone through a lot of therapy and understood like. Oh, you know, I mean, bodily arousal happens in situations like that. Of course, if you're a kid, there's confusion. It wasn't actually until I don't know if you know this book by Susan Clancy, The Trauma Myth, which got her all but sort of exiled for writing this book because she 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 was at Harvard and she wrote this book. You know, she's a sociologist that kids who were sexually abused, didn't experience trauma until the reconfiguration of the events. And um, she was like, that's repeatedly, she's like again and again, the book. I'm not saying it's not a violation. I'm not saying it's not bad, but the trauma model until the moment of reconfiguration doesn't really help. And a lot of kids who, and the two children that you um, write about as well in the Ian chapter at least at first don't experience it as violent or you know physically threatening exactly it's confusing and that of course is because usually happens from someone they love and so i think all this is interesting to me because with your forensic psychiatry this is the place where i think the law and what actually is happening not just in a psychological way but behaviorally are a complete mismatch they seem completely at odds. The law actually seems completely at odds with reality. So for instance, in the U S there are all these laws about not allowing child molesters around where children congregate. So there are these actual like uh child molester villages because they have to live <laughs> far away from kids. But of course it's all, it's almost always children that they knew and the recidivism rate is so low because it involves a, distorted and violating love relationship, not some unquenchable thirst to have sex with children. Although there are people that are that as well, but it's so much rarer, you know? And so all kinds of policies like that spin out from this deep misunderstanding, which in I know from firsthand really does not help victims heal, doesn't actually really prolong suffering for a long time for people who are trying to heal,
1: I think that's absolutely right, and I think uh, I'm, I'm, this is not a, a new idea and it's not my own idea, but I'm very struck by these models of, um, of sexual offending that are really predicated on a kind of idea of male lust, mm. which I think is really very odd um, and, and not actually, I think, particularly true uh, to, or, or at least it's based perhaps on a very particular kind of view of um of male sexual interest which i suspect is much more fluid and much more you know much more textured and nuanced um uh and in fact probably more like feminine you know, than than we know there's much less difference between these things but this idea of male lust is is unstoppable is fixated mm. um once aroused can never must be quenched immediately or something terrible will happen um but it's the only thing that dom- only thing that dominates a person's mind you know so if you're sexually fixated on you know something that's all you think about all day every day because that also goes with the narrative that that's what happens in male male you know, males think about sex all day every day says the public narrative mm. and and i just think that the evidence for this is a bit limited um and 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 actually people's Whatever sex means to people is really complicated. <laughs> right, right.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I think I would think like you know, if I were to take the psychoanalytic, you know, uh, perspective seriously. I would think that people think about sex all day, every day, or at least desire. But that just plays out in so many different ways that to frame it as like I need to hump the couch because I'm horny, you know, like at, at three forty four in the morning or something like that. Maybe that was too specific for the listeners, but the, but the <laughs> but that that's preposterous. It's just that you know desire desire rays out into everything we do. So that just to pinpoint it in, I'm imagining intercourse of a certain kind with a specific object is really preposterous. But then I also think this, like, I mean, first of all, just to back up and say, for anyone that's unfamiliar with, with me or, or with you that's listening to this, like, of course, that is not to say that there aren't people who have uncontrollable lust, that some children are, do not experience trauma as children before the reconfiguration, that none of the offenses are physically violent and threatening all that kind of stuff. Of course, that's, that's true. But to create a healing picture, a narrative requires something else. Right? I wonder if you think, <laughs> oh, maybe this is... <laughs> Well, let's see. You know, I think a lot of the sexual attitude in the 18th century, which was probably really necessary for a development of a certain kind of um, feminism and women's rights then, but where this idea was predicated that like women held the virtue and men were the uncontrollable lusting figures, that seems to have just stayed with us till now, where when that was developed, it was very specifically to re- inscribe power to women you know in a very in a really worthwhile way but it seems to still filter into these kinds of narratives which I'm like this is a centuries-old notion that might not be serving us in all these different (laughs) ways right now.
1: I absolutely no I absolutely I absolutely agree um not least of all because it leaves out some kind of account of women's desire (laughs) All all together, all together, um, um, which is a whole, which of course is a whole other ball game. And I really like what you said um, just now, also about reinforcing because with offenders that when they who, who have sexually abused children, they say, "I used to run therapy groups for people who sexually abused their own children," and we very much started from the from you know you start from the premise that what you did is wrong, and you have to do that because a lot of these guys have convinced themselves that it's all right. They make it all right for themselves mm-hmm. in order to convince themselves that it's okay. And they often frame it in terms of it's a kind of love. They didn't mm-hmm. say no. They didn't seem to be frightened, you know, ignoring all the signs of fear that there might, that kind of thing. So, it, you, you know, the, so the dismantling of those narratives is, I mean, that's in a way where I learnt about cover stories and the dismantling of, of narratives that neutralise your own wrongdoing so it makes it possible for you to offend um, and that's really important too because it puts the responsibility firmly back with them but i i think even now theories of how sex offenders um, come to commit their offenses is still very much couched in terms of a kind of unstoppable fixated desire um very object focused i see something I see something that I desire, and desire is not explored in this way at all, mm-hmm. not in the nuanced way that you're talking about. Desire is just a kind of genital fixation. I masturbate to that image, and then I must have it, because mm-hmm. masturbation is not enough, and then I must act. Well, this is not what the non-offending pedophiles tell us. This is not what anybody who's a non-offending, transgressive, desire person tells us. This is not what happens. Mm-hmm. You, you know, You have your desire. You become aware, for whatever reason, that it is transgressive, um, whatever that means, and it's often very specific to your moment in time. And I'm just thinking about, you know, just 1950s, um, you know, before the, you know, before um, when homosexuality was still a crime and all that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and and there are, you know, there are plenty of people um, who struggle with a sense of that their desire is somehow transgressive and never act on it. Mm-hmm. Of course, they know. but it because i guess you know what then but what then happens is and this is a much wider story isn't it about i'm transgressive that somehow mm-hmm. where my desire becomes part of who i am and i'm the transgression or i'm the transgressor mm-hmm. and uh, as a kind of identity and um and that's how people are going to see me and i think that kind and then that and then we get into the stuff about passing don't we mm-hmm. where you've got you've got a Um, this is who I am on the outside. There's some kind of surface story. And then there's a kind of who I am on the inside, a secret, a secret self. And you, and you, we're back to that sense of of violence perpetrators as being transgressors. And and they are this loud tune, um, which is played, um, if you like.
0: So, yeah, I mean, to maybe take it away from the violent offense a little bit. I mean, I would just say, you know, in my own life, having been a sex worker for, you know, 10 years and being really outwardly f- facing with porn and stuff like that. you know, I always thought like I was happy to transgress, like in a way, like I really wanted to show people, look, you can be a sort of integrated, you know, person and be sort of outwardly f- facing with your sexuality and, and all that. And it really meant a lot to me. And I know it still means a lot to others, but you know, now it's been almost ten years since I've made you know porn, and so I and now really working on like that's not it, it takes a long time for me to think you're not transgressor anymore. Like, sure, I do things and I offer things that might be challenging, but it's not not being in that role. So even if I'm doing that as probably someone who had a really okay, mostly good experience of sex work. I'm just imagining people who have done things that they actually feel are revocable, that they're unhappy with, that they can escape the identity of having shattered through boundaries that they don't think should be shattered through that they, you know, and, and in the case of violent offenders, of course, they shouldn't have, but I, I, maybe taking it away from that a little bit, the sense of identity as someone who has irrevocably, shifted things in a way that they just don't want to i mean i suppose we've been talking about this all along in one form or another in this conversation but it's painful must be extremely painful
1: it is painful and i and and what you're saying also reminds me that it's perhaps important for me to say and acknowledge that i have a very particular view on this because i tend to meet people who do feel that what, who do feel that their identity, as it were, has been a mistake, or that something bad has gone wrong, that they've trans, that their transgressor identity is wrong, um, is was a mistake, shouldn't have happened, is for want of a better word, bad, um, and that they feel this tremendous tension between, I'm a person who, yes, I'm a person who killed three people, but I'm also a nice guy, yeah, yeah. and and how does that work? um and you you're making me think of somebody i i i was interviewing who killed his dad um and he's and he could but he he couldn't remember it which is why he was in he i was why i was seeing him because his his defense counsel were a bit all over the place they're trying to get a defense for this guy but he says he did it but he can't remember anything about it so mm-hmm. the defense council needs something to work with so get a psychiatrist to see him so thank you and so i so so i so, yeah thanks very much guys so um so so he comes to my unit and I'm talking to him and he's a nice guy. He is he's a nice guy. Um and you know, he hasn't got he hasn't apparently got the childhood adversity, he hasn't got anything, but he killed his dad, no doubt about it. And and he and I say to him, Isn't it, isn't it strange that you 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 say that you did this thing and you can't remember anything about it? And he said this, he said, I can't imagine being the kind of person who would do such a thing. Mm. And I thought that was really weird mm-hmm. because he is the person who did that. He right. knows that he's the person that who did that, but yet he's saying he can't imagine being him. Mm-hmm. And that I thought spoke to a kind again this fragmentation of mind, this you no know, this kind of incoherence, mm-hmm. um, which might make something incomprehensible internal landscape where the lock, lack of memory just was a kind of cover for a kind of internal fragmentation.
0: Yeah. So if you feel uncomfortable with this pathway that I'm about to lead us down, um <laughs> please tell me we can we don't have to talk about it, but you know, I know with I mean I know that you've 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 spoken very just lightly, as far as I could tell about Christianity and its role in your life. And, you know, I, as someone who's Christian myself, I'm not raised with any religion, but came to it sort of just on my own. I mean, I think, like, I do think that there are, you know, possession models that make sense to me, you know, and not like, you know, these stories of Jeffrey Dahmer, like when he was a kid would would have these seizures. And at first he would have them to impress his friends. He would just do this sort of like fake seizure, but then he just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And it's almost as if you can see something jumping in, in that moment. Now, I don't want to go to a medicalized model of trying to exercise people exactly. And I, and I certainly think, you know, I mean, as far as the Catholic church goes, at least they're very strict about what determines this or that but it does seem like in a statement like that i can't imagine being the kind of person to do that the split is so deep it almost seems as if someone else is inhabiting that speaker or that or the doer of the violence and sometimes when the violence is so horrific that i can't help but seem demonic or evil in some way you can't help but think like is there something inhabiting here like is is there something else uh, an, an intruding force you know you don't have to speak to that as a therapist and maybe it's maybe it'd be difficult <laughs> to be in scientific community and speak about that but i don't know if you have any thoughts on it
1: well i, I have I, I have many thoughts <laughs> <laughs> any thoughts um and my first thought is you're reminding me of a very interesting conference i was at where we did in fact have um a uh, priest in the church of england who was trained in what I believe is the sacrament of recovery, I think, is what, there's, what they now call exorcism, um, and had, in fact, carried out exorcism. So he was a very, very smart, very thoughtful kind of guy, nothing no, nothing, um, schlocky about him at all. He's just very calm, very quiet you know. Um, And I suppose what I wrestle with a little bit is is the idea of this alien force, because I guess for me what what appeals to me of the many things that that i suppose um the christian way is l- lights for me is the idea that that capacity for evil is in all of us mm-hmm. along with our capacity for goodness it's not out there coming to grab us it's it's that capacity <clears> for <throat> evil there in all of us and and that is um and it's it's you know, and the, as you know, the the Christian tradition says that that's that's part of the cost mm-hmm. of 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 turning towards leading a you know following goodness. That if you want to fall into goodness, as Richard Raw says, if you want to fall into love, you have to embrace embrace you know the shadow side of yourself. You have to get to know the devil within you. Right. Um, and um and that's why i like richard Rawls' work so much um and because um i think that he is someone you know who does encourage us to say if we if we take our devil seriously right, and that's the danger it seems to me of, of talking that kind of language or it's coming from the outside to get you it's like and and then it ends up in the kind of nonsense where people say you know they want their children to read harry potter you know
0: right right, right. yeah
1: <laughs> <It's>, you know <laughs> that's the that's the that's the worry I think I I for me I would rather people with a you know with a bit of courage and support from others you know take a step to say you know what I guess that capacity for cruelty real cruelty and darkness is in each and every one of us including me today mm-hmm. and um and you know when you know when we pray for our daily bread <laughs> our, our quotidian bread we're also praying for the for the support, not to do anything bad today. <laughs> the support, not <laughs> thing, not giving it. Hoping we're going to get the nurturance and the sustenance to, to to be as good as we can be today. To be our best selves today. In that, in that very contemporary phrase, to be our best selves today, and
0: uh, not
1: let, let not let our shadow side emerge too much.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much in what you said. There's so much. I mean, I think one. I mean, to, to talk about some sort of possession or invading force, I mean, I think it would require a really, really like fleshed out kind of a phenomenology or metaphysics or whatever that mostly is not introduced when people talk about that kind of stuff. Right. So I, everything you said, I completely uh, agree with. And then I think, you know, I mean, my, my Christian is mostly located with Rudolf Steiner, esoteric Christianity, Resurrectionism, that sort of thing. And so that has this whole map of how that might happen, which is a little different. But I, I agree with you in the definitely in the way that you're you've characterized most perception of that. And I think um and I think also noticing the evil or like noticing that it could all be us, you can you can see that in the the contempt we have for people who have committed these offenses is our resonant echo of, of the, the, them, that's us. Like when we dislike them so much, we can feel them. We can feel ourselves as them because we feel about them as most of them feel about themselves. So there's almost this hatred or or, or anger or repulsion is this strange act of empathy for the person that we could have been. And then but I think going back to something you said really early on, you know, I, I don't meet people who wake up and decide I'm going to do the evil thing. And yet, I think because of what you said that I and I've talked about this on the show a bit before, I feel that there that actually would be the defining characteristic of evil rather than a wound, rather than a disaster, that there are people who are evil And that would be the defining characteristic is saying I've chosen and decided not out of compulsion, not even out of possession or whatever that might be, but I've decided to do this thing that will harm people out of my interest in harming them. And, you know, when you say when you've killed somebody, you've changed the universe out of my interest in changing the universe in a specific way that I've decided to engage in. And you're saying that you haven't met anybody like that. I would assume that those kinds of people are actually quite rare, and that what we call evil is is usually you know hurt, um, hurt, pain, suffering, you know, outwardly expressed. But there must also be, then, if freedom exists, which I do believe it does, true evil.
1: Well, and I suppose what I'm what I Have come to think how the way I've come to think about this is as kind of evil as as an adjective rather than a noun. So Mm. a kind of state of mind in which these things are possible, and I completely agree with what you say. And I and to add to it, I would say. That I'm going to. Not only am I going to choose to do this harm to others, um, I'm going to change. I'm going to change the world forever because I can. Mm-hmm. Partly because I can, I have the power to do so, and I can. Um, so that choosing to, I, I choose not to refrain, I think it's important, but I think there's also something because partly because I've just either because I've decided that these people are not really humans or I have the power to determine that they're not humans or they're things that I can get rid of. And I have that power, you know, the you know, Orson Wells line in the third man, you know, really doesn't matter if some of these little ant-like figures disappear and yeah. we're bigger than that kind of thing. Um, but the other thing, and the thing that I think is really interesting, is the people who say I'm going to do this because it will profit me financially. Mm. I will benefit myself. And there's a really <laughs> interesting British story. I can't remember this man's name, and it's probably not behovely to mention it. But he got convicted of fraud um, because he was selling fake um, IED detectors to um, to people who were um, who were looking for mines. Mm. So they were doing yeah. They were doing mine clearance in wherever it was, war torn wherever it was, and he was selling them fake things um, to, to to detect them. And they were literally, you know, a tennis ball with a compass attached, or something. I mean, it, it had no. And mm-hmm. he made hundreds and thousands of pounds selling these things to people, knowing that they didn't work. Um, and he went to he, he went to he only got seven years or something, before. <laughs> but and. You know, it's, you know, thousands of people have probably died because of what he sold them. And he's out now. I don't know what business he's in. Huh? I mean, we probably ought to find out and avoid it. Um, but yeah, uh, but I, I, it's that kind of state that I think is is really interesting. I mean, you know, so that's and then, of course, the other example, the best example of the former kind is the Vansay conference where you've got 14 men. You know, from who are lawyers, jurisprudence, civil servants, policemen, all sorts, and they say, "Okay, we're going to get rid of a group of the citizenry, a subgroup of the citizenry. We're just going to eradicate. How are we going to do it, guys?" Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. and none of these men have childhood adversity, particularly. None of these—they're pillars of society, very successful. They have lovely partners, lovely houses very successful when they're in the middle of a war for heaven's sake and say let's let's we mustn't forget this very important civic task we've got to do which is to eradicate some of the citizenry and and it makes no sense at all but they just they they did it because they could and they because they decided that this subgroup of citizens were just not not humans anymore and that is bizarre but it needs to be thought about if we're going to take evil seriously because that kind of state of mind is clearly alive and kicking all over the world, and the w- big worry is, of course, about what's going to happen in Afghanistan, where some people aren't going to be seen as properly human anymore, have the same rights as others.
0: Right, and 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 that might be enacted by the other people who were not seen as human before, by you know the others. Right, it just goes on and on and on. Right, so it just it just follows well, that path, and then. I mean, I think there is just this balancing act that you're talking about where it's like the the, you know, so you're so when I'm thinking about Dan's work, Dan Grant's work to expose this, this, the Death Killers, you know, someone who is responsible for just all these people dying and land being destroyed and homes being destroyed, and I mean massive amounts of violence because this person decided to step into the evil confining box of compartmentalization and sign a sheet of paper and how little attention and money and law we turn towards that versus if someone kills three people of course it's grisly and, and de- or four and decapitates them or whatever of course that's a horrible crime but the amount of resources fiction time everything set up like narrative cultural narratives movies, songs even, like directed towards the attentiveness to monstering, as you say, that person, you know, it's like, okay, so can we bring some humanity to them and bring some attention and evil and law and regulation to this other group of people who are really doing the harm? And you can see the way that this narrative is exploding now. I mean, all this like the, the QAnon stuff about, oh, well, like someone's... You know, politicians are murdering, raping babies, and killing kids. And it's like, okay, like the Catholic Church here in Ireland has done quite a bit of that. Um, Drone strikes in Pakistan have done quite a bit of that. What turn your attention to these massive offenses rather than, you know, and that would show me that you actually care about this morally and ethically. Rather than this fascination, which seems almost erotic in some horrible way to me, uh, with the single or, you know, the few offense people, you know.
1: I completely I mean, I think what's fascinating, uh, well, and but also a bit scary is the, the again, we're back to that thing that you mentioned earlier about the fixation on pedophilia. Mm-hmm. of that there are a group of people called paedophiles and they're planning to take over the world. And think oh, hang on a minute. I think we've been here before about people taking over the world who we have to eradicate. <laughs> Let's just hold our horses here. Um and um but I and I I and I agree with you. I suppose when I when I worry sometimes in the world that I work in whether the focus on people who've done something really yucky is a kind of distraction. It's a sign kind of sh- sideshow. It's uh like the magicians look over here. Well well, I do something else, you know. We'll get everybody. We'll get everybody really incensed about uh, people with mental illnesses who kill people. Which, of course, is incredibly rare and very unusual. We'll get we'll get very incensed about them, but we won't have a look. At, we won't look at the day to day cruelties or the day to day way in which we exploit people. Uh, we won't look at that capacity. And I, I thought what you said about the projection: were we seeing ourselves? In, in in violence and then condemning it—a kind of weird empathy—made me think of your uh, about Lacan and the idea about mirroring and that kind of malignant mirroring, where I see something of myself in this offender and I really don't like it, right. so I'm I'm going to attack them and I'm going to get them pilloried and held up and that and that will show everybody what a good guy I am. I and I think that I think that is a real. The, the, what is very intriguing to me as I'm sure it is to you, is this idea that I'm going to show everybody I'm a good person by sitting in my room and verbally abusing other people on social media? You know, how is how is that showing that you're a good person? What are you What are you going to do with your life, your one wild perfect life? What are you going to do with your one mm. wild perfect life, as Mary Oliver says? You know, what are you going to do? Um,
0: Yeah, and I I mean, so so maybe that leads us just to the last point, which probably should have been the first point, but we'll see. Um, People, even some people I love very, very much, you know, I mean, they've seen images of violence, or they've heard about these horrible things that people do. I mean, whether the people are soldiers, or murderers, or sex offenders, or whatever it might be and how trouble, have a real hard time forgiving. Um, maybe they don't see the value in forgiveness, or maybe it just seems so inaccessible because the, 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 the approach towards the violence, towards the offense is so intense for them that it it feels like there's no way out of the intensity of even just encountering it. Do you have, and certainly that's a societal move. That's a societal gesture, as you say, in retribution, fuck those people, whatever it is, you know, last on my list of priorities. And it really does seem to me that the only way, like for the only way is to actually doesn't mean release everybody from where they are, but that, but some sense of forgiveness within ourselves, some sense of undoing the not in ourselves that, not being able to forgive or pray for somebody or care for somebody try to understand somebody that creates a not nuts. That's that, which is not good for us either. So even just on that level, but then on the victim side, and then finally, if we are even able to go there to the side of the perpetrator, do you have any thoughts on how we can do that or meet that challenge? Because I'm I, I've just been thinking so much about love lately and it, it's you, your, your book came in the perfect moment when all I've been caring about is trying to consider love from these different angles, because it's taken such a role in my central role in my understanding in life lately that how do we bring that to bear here? Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You wanted to end. You said this was the final point, Connor, which we're going to to end. and you. <laughs> And a kind of kind of simple thing.
0: Uh, <laughs> all right, and, solve it. Go, Gwen.
1: <laughs> love and forgiveness um, in thirty seconds. Doctor Ad said you have thirty seconds. Um, okay. Um, so the I, I think what I uh, I what I really think is that forgiveness is hard, and it's hard for all of us. It's hard for the victims. It's hard for society. It's hard for society. It's hard for third parties who are not involved um, uh, but feel that kind of outrage on behalf of victims. But as many wise people have said, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean feeling warm and fuzzy towards the perpetrator. It does mean perhaps exactly what you've said, which is not contributing more Cruelty, not tightening the knot of um, of rage and vengefulness, which is very natural when we've been hurt. I mean, I, I I think it is only natural for people to feel huge rage and vengefulness if they've been hurt, and they want to hit back, and they want to do some damage because they're just overwhelmed with these feelings of pain and fear and helplessness and all those terrible things that go with being a victim. And um, and so you know hurting other somebody else can really seem like a very neat and easy way to do it. But as you say, it tightens something. Um, what Cynthia Bourgeau talks about is a kind of kind of bra- you're bracing yourself instead of being open, opening up. Mm. Um, you brace yourself and you build up a wall. Mm. And with that wall, as you and I've been talking about, you build up a wall, and then you've got more chance of compartmentalizing that kind of fragmentation, that kind of othering and and that kind of splitting that we think might lead to cruelty in itself. So I think there's something for me about keeping open, about acknowledging that forgiveness is difficult, that being open to the idea of letting that hurt come and being present with it, self-compassion for our own hurt and our own rage. But in a a tiny way, uh, I think, you know, I, I really hope that compassion for other people, the idea that the perpetrator of violence is somebody who has done a terrible, terrible thing, and none of us have to like this terrible, terrible thing. But but just but perhaps getting a step closer to understanding the roots of that person's cruelty might help to keep us open, um, might help us not to harden up yeah. um, and add to the next wave, the next generation of cruelty. So it may be in our interests to try and keep our hearts and minds and eyes open, uh, I think. And that's really, again, I, I think what we've tried to do in our book was an invitation to, to come and see, just to get a little closer, a little radical, what we call out in book radical empathy, really, because we're trying to get to the root, the radics of, of what's going on, but we're also keeping a kind of respectful distance and reminding ourselves that, you know, true true cruelty has happened terrible damage has been done and we have to be respectful of that too
0: hmm. yeah i mean th- i just want to say as we end here thank you for thank you for everything you do um reading it is uh, it's a way to break one's heart open and i think it's something i hope everybody does if they're if they haven't read read your latest book yet um but also i hope that people take on board the strength of being able to sit in a room with someone that you enact every day that that resonance and that presence allows us to do it more easily so i just want to thank you and thank you for this conversation
1: thank you connor it's been a real pleasure
0: Thanks everybody for listening. Bye now.